1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: We've got a special code for podcast listeners that gets you a 20% discount subscription to New Scientist. The code is POD20. Go to newscientist.com/pod20 to subscribe, and you'll get all the contents of the magazine plus audio versions of the stories that you can listen to in our app. That's newscientist.com/pod20 to get your twenty percent discount.
3: Hello, everyone. Welcome to the New Scientist Weekly. It's your essential weekly fix of science. I'm your host, Rowan Hooper,
2: and I'm your other host, Penny Sarchet. Welcome to the show. This week we're also joined by New Scientist reporters Lea Crane from Chicago and Alice Klein from Australia. Coming up on the show this week we're hearing from Professor David Beerling of the University of Sheffield on a really promising method of improving our soils and also getting carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere.
3: And also staying with the climate crisis we've got a report on how lichens, lovely lichens, Mm -hmm. uh, are impacted by warmer conditions. And we're also hearing the latest developments in private spaceflight and uh, SpaceX's moon missions.
2: All that, plus we're also going to discuss a neuroscience paper that suggests humans can't, in fact, grow new brain cells as adults after all. Oh, Mm, no. (laughs)
4: Yeah.
2: But we start with just a truly remarkable good news story from Australia about a cancer treatment programme called Zero, which is designed to get the number of children who die of cancer down to zero. The programme involves tailoring treatments to each individual child based on their specific cancer, and it's already saved the lives of over 150 children in Australia who had the most aggressive cancers and who otherwise would have died.
3: Yeah, it really is a a really moving story, this. Um, We've got some audio in the piece from the parents of a little boy whose life was saved by the treatment.
2: Yeah, so Rowan, you spoke to our Australian reporter, Alice Klein, about it.
3: Hi Alice, great to have you back on the show. Now, this programme is using personalised medicine to treat children with cancer, and that's something that's been talked about for quite a long time, but only in the last few years it's kind of moved out of the lab and into the clinic, hasn't it? So can you give us a recap first on what personalised medicine is?
5: Yeah, well, we're increasingly starting to understand that in both children and adults with cancer, every single person's cancer is different to the next. So it doesn't really make sense to just give the same standardised treatments like we've been doing for a while now. So the idea of this zero personalised medicine programme is to study each individual child's cancer try to work out what's driving it, and then to tailor therapies accordingly.
3: Yeah, so it's like a Darwinian uh, medicine approach to treatment, isn't it? Um, So how do you work out, though, what is driving each child's cancer?
5: Well, the first step is that they take a sample of the child's tumour and they genetically sequence it to see if they can find any mutations in that tumour that might be the root
3: cause. So one of the things behind the, the rise, the recent rise in personalized medicine is that the speed and ease now that we have of being able to do genetic sequencing, right? And then once you find all those mutations, you can then find treatments to specifically target those, can't you?
5: Yeah. So for example, I interviewed the parents of a boy called Jack Burai uh, from Sydney, who was diagnosed with a brain tumor in 2017 when he was nine years old. And it was actually so aggressive that it Ended up coating his whole brain and spine, and oh. he couldn't walk. He couldn't eat. Um, he was in a wheelchair. Uh, he couldn't see out of his right eye. He, he could barely see out of his left eye, and he was just in in terrible pain.
3: Oh my God! What, so yeah. he wasn't. He was obviously not given very long at that stage.
5: No, no. It was a. It was an end of life situation. Oh. Um, but then he got involved in this zero program, and when the scientists sequenced his tumour, they discovered that it had this mutation called V600E in a gene called BRAF, and they thought that mutation was driving it. Fortunately, they also knew from other research that cancers with this mutation often respond to two drugs that are normally used to treat melanoma in adults.
3: Okay, so then they were just able to give Jack those drugs?
5: Yeah, and his response was amazing. So within a week, he was walking again and within a month, he was playing tennis with his mum, wow. which his parents just couldn't believe. And scans that they were doing were showing that the tumour was rapidly shrinking and then it just completely disappeared. And now he's 14, he's still cancer-free, he's running marathons, he's riding his bike every day, he got his boat licence just this weekend, and mm-hmm. all these things that he wouldn't have been able to do without this zero program because his doctors say he, he just wouldn't have survived without it. And here's a clip from Jack's parents. It's just truly miraculous Mm -hmm, because mm -hmm. he was slipping away in front of our eyes. Yeah. And we just felt so helpless. Mm -hmm. You know, he had a a pump installed. Mm -hmm. He was having blood, platelet transfusions. Yeah. He was a very sickly child because Mm -hmm. from the day Jack was born, he was very lively, strong and energetic. So we we just couldn't believe that was our child. Yeah, yeah. As soon as we found out, well, not we, but mm. um, God bless them, the children's cancer research, mm. mm-hmm. we were so lucky that we, yeah. well, Jack,
2: happened to be chosen for that. We would not be here telling the story absolutely yeah. no way. And, mm-hmm. yeah. But he yeah. just went from someone we didn't know to back to his normal self. Yeah. It, it, the transformation was incredible.
3: Wow, that's uh, the whole story is so moving. Uh, that's really incredible. OK, so... What about if they can't find anything particular that they think is driving that that person's cancer? What do they do then?
5: Well, another thing that the Xero program does is they try this kind of scattergun approach where they take tumor cells from the child and they grow them in the lab and then they test them against 100 different cancer drugs to see if any happen to be active in these cells and drugs that appear most active against the tumour cells are then tested in mice that have been injected with the child's tumour cells. So they call these mouse avatars, and that's <laughs> to test their yeah to test their safety and efficacy before they're given to the child.
3: Right. And so, how many Australian children with cancer have been through the program so far?
5: About 700 so far since the program wow. began in 2015. And at the moment, it's only open to children with these really nasty cancers, like the one that Jack had. Most would have been expected to die by now with standard care. But so far, the program has saved over 150 of these kids, meaning their cancers have completely or partially disappeared or stabilised. And many of them have been cancer-free for four or five years now. And the zero scientists, I mean, they thought that just saving one kid with this program would be a win, and they've saved over 150, so... They're That's just just—they're um, over the moon. Yeah. And actually, because it's been so successful, more than anyone dreamed of, the Australian government's recently committed $55 million to making this personalized medicine program available to every single Australian child with cancer from next year, not just the ones with the bad cancers.
3: And what about other countries? They must be looking at this thinking, we want some of that as well.
5: Yeah, so there are other countries experimenting with this sort of thing, but no countries have got this really comprehensive program that's available nationwide. But I think it's probably a matter of time before other yeah. countries follow suit.
3: So, the goal of getting to zero children dying of cancer is that something, you know, achievable?
5: Well, the zero scientists that I spoke to think it actually is a realistic goal because if you think about it, Already since the 1950s, we've managed to increase the survival rate for kids with cancer from zero, like it used to be a death sentence, Mm. to over 80% now. So it doesn't actually seem that crazy to get to that last 20%. And there are new treatments coming out, like immunotherapies and things that will help. And then with this personalized approach where you're making sure that you get the right treatment for the right child at the right time, hopefully we'll get to a point where no child needs to be lost to cancer.
3: One thing that also occurs to me is personalized medicine isn't something that's just limited to children. I mean, we could and we should eventually be using this for everyone, right? If it's a, Or is it just a, a matter of, of finding the money to do it?
5: Well, yeah, I think it's the money, but, you know, the cost of tumor sequencing and, and things will come down. So I suspect personalized medicine is going to be a much bigger thing in the future, and maybe these children are just sort of the the way forward.
2: Well, that is really just an amazing, incredibly moving story. I really recommend reading Alice's written piece as well. Uh, We'll link to that in our show notes.
3: Now, we haven't had a life form of the week for a little while. Let's have one, shall we?
2: Yeah. uh, What better organism to choose than lichen, eh?
3: (laughs) No better organism to choose. (laughs)
2: Um there's so many things to love about like it are you know, sign of a healthy woodland, provide food and shelter for little animals. Um, they also suck out carbon dioxide out of the air, which is important.
3: And they're a lovely partnership, a symbiotic partnership between a fungus and either a cyanobacteria or algae.
2: Yeah, so they're one of these great examples of cooperation, aren't they? And it's those cyanobacteria or algae that enable lichen to create their own food from sunlight. But now a study of a particular genus of lichen-forming algae has suggested that these evolve incredibly slowly.
3: How slowly are we talking?
2: Well, so this study made a detailed genetic family tree of the genus of this type of algae to see how quickly in its evolutionary past this algae has been able to adapt to warmer temperatures in new environments.
3: OK, so I can see where this is going. It might have implications for the future as we're, as we're warming the planet.
2: Yeah, precisely. Um, What they found was that these algae are very slow to adapt to new climates, shifting their temperature preferences by less than one degree Celsius every million years.
3: Wow. Well, so I thought I was expecting to be slow because lichens are slow growing things, Mm. but that does sound really slow. Well, so does that mean if the world's going to, you know, the world's warming by 1.5 degrees pretty soon, right? So what's what's it going to mean for lichen?
2: Yeah, yeah, so it is really at the lower end of the scale when it comes to known evolutionary rates for for organisms. And so of course that does suggest that these lichen algae will struggle to adapt to our rapidly warming temperatures. So one of the researchers behind the work suggests that lichens that involve Trabuxia as one of the partners will disappear from many of the places they are currently in. But of course, it's worth noting that even though these algae are particularly slow, many organisms won't be able to evolve at the the sheer pace of climate change. It's really a difficult adaptation problem for most organisms. So the hope for many species and and including these lichens is that they'll somehow be able to find suitable habitats to move into as the climate changes.
3: And how significant is that? I mean, this is one genus of Trebuxia lichen. So how important are they?
2: Yeah, this is actually amazing. Trabuxia is found in about 7,000 species of lichen. Um, the, (laughs) The writer of this story for us, Jake Bueller, he noted that there are only about 6,400 described mammal species. So there, yeah. are, there are many more lichens uh, involving trabixia than there are mammals. I'd never really thought before how many different species of lichen there were.
3: No, I must say I've never thought that either. And what about why they evolved just so slowly?
2: i find this quite beautiful actually um it's probably because they they essentially have a limitless lifespan in the right conditions a lichen could practically be eternal so we know that organisms (laughs) that live these long slow lives they have much fewer opportunities to reproduce adapt evolve yeah
3: um this reminds me that we covered the wonders of lichen in uh, series one of our sister show escape pod and i'll put a link in the show notes to that episode
2: Are you ready to indulge your inner scientist and broaden your horizons in the world of online learning?
3: Yeah, I am, yes.
2: New Scientist Academy, with over 7,000 active learners, is an education platform for you to get even more involved with the subjects you're most passionate about.
3: Yes, the Academy is just over a year old. So far, we've launched 12 courses covering subjects like the human brain, consciousness, genetics, evolution, greener living, health and well-being. And my personal favourite, Everyday Quantum Physics.
5: I just love that
3: title.
2: (laughs) New Scientist Academy has an offer especially for our podcast listeners. Go to academy.newscientist.com and use the code POD40 in your shopping basket to book any of our CPD-accredited online courses at 40% off. New Scientist Academy, science courses for everyone. And we're back. So let's talk about carbon capture. We've mm. got a report this week from our chief reporter, Adam Vaughan, on ways of getting greenhouse gases out of the air. The obvious way is to boost biomass on land and sea, to use trees, peatland, marine organisms to suck as much carbon as we can out of the atmosphere. But for a number of reasons, we're going to need engineered methods too, aren't we?
3: Yeah, So um, I think that the nature-based solutions, as they're called, they're great, um, but they compete for land that we currently use for agriculture and for livestock rearing, amongst other things. Plus, trees take a long time to grow and to draw the carbon down. And the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, their report last year was very clear that we need all kinds of removal strategies in order to stabilise temperature rises this century.
2: Yeah, did you see that report even before the storms this week that the UK's lost eight million trees this year, just been blown uh, over?
3: Horrendous. Yeah. So, you
2: know, it's quite an effort if we we can't do it by trees alone. So, in other words, we do need technological solutions to help us get carbon levels down as well as these nature-based solutions. Things in this space, it's all been quite theoretical until recently, but this year we've started to see lots of different pilot programmes testing different methods. There's also more money and competitions coming in to sort of stimulate the development of these. Rowan, you spoke to an expert leading one promising trial to use rocks to draw down carbon dioxide.
3: Yeah, one of the projects I've been really interested in is called Enhanced Weathering. And full disclosure, I gave a lot of money to this method in my book, How to Spend a Trillion Dollars. And one of the scientists here in the UK leading the development of this technique is Professor David Beerling, and we're joined by him now. David, thanks for joining us. Can you give us a quick overview of what enhanced weathering is?
4: So it involves applying crushed calcium, magnesium, silicate rock, typically basalt, which is a very common volcanic rock, over agricultural land, either arable land or grassland. And then as as the crushed rock dissolves, it captures carbon and it releases nutrients that help the crops grow better and it also produces alkalinity which helps reverse soil acidification which is a problem caused by intensification of agriculture is this a form
3: of of carbon farming or a regenerative agriculture as people might have heard of those terms
4: yeah i mean i guess you could you could class it as a form of regenerative agriculture because it would help to restore soil so One of the issues with intensification of farming is it causes depletion of nutrients that are important to the crops because you're basically, the crops are taking up these minor nutrients and then you're harvesting the biomass and taking it off site. So slowly these biological pools in the soils are becoming depleted and they're becoming acidified through the use of fertilizers. And so applying crushed basalt will help reverse all of those aspects and help restore soils. And
3: getting the basalt, that doesn't itself cause ecological damage, does it? Or is it easy
4: to access the, uh, the amount you might need? There are basalt mines in the UK, and it's basically mined as an aggregate for road building or construction. But for every tonne of material they mine, they produce 20 to 30 percent of material that's too fine. So it's basically like a waste product, it's a dust. Sometimes that goes into asphalt. But with the kind of rise to prominence of enhanced weathering, they've, these companies, mining companies, are beginning to realise they've got a valuable product for carbon capture and helping UK food and soil security. And so we're sort of slowly changing the perception that actually this could be a good thing. Um, this is a waste product, which could be a good thing to recycle. Why do we
3: need... Direct air capture and these other methods like enhanced weather and other methods of getting rid of greenhouse gases, and why can't we just rely on nature-based solutions like growing trees, which are already proven methods of, of getting carbon out?
4: No one carbon dioxide removal technology will help us get to net zero, even if we manage to dial down our emissions by transitioning away from fossil fuels, we're still going to be left with a need to take carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere, compensate for those hard to decarbonize. Industries, so particularly you know, aviation, shipping, and agriculture, in order to, to get the UK to net zero, you know, there's going to be no one carbon dioxide removal technology that will do the whole job. We're going to need to spread it across different technologies.
3: One of the things that got me really excited about enhanced weathering was your nature paper from a couple of years ago, showing that it could potentially draw down two gigatons of carbon a year, so up to two billion tons per year. um, And that's in the context of humans emitting about 37 billion tons per year. So it it could be a significant chunk fixed down if, if this was rolled out on a really big scale. Are you still confident about those figures a couple of years on? Or what, the, what are the biggest barriers holding us back?
4: Yeah, so I think, you know, the most important thing to realise is that, you know, if you're adding 30, we're currently adding about 38 billion tonnes of CO2 to the atmosphere. If you don't dial down those emissions, there's no carbon dioxide removal strategy that's ever going to help. So we have to, the world has to transition to clean energy to dar down our emissions. But at the same time, we need to kind of kickstart our research and innovation and demonstration and development of carbon dioxide removal technologies. And uh, the Nature paper did, was a kind of initial assessment to look at the potential of enhanced weathering as it would be deployed around 10 major countries. Our suspicion is that actually we could probably do better than 2 billion tonnes a year. Hmm. One of the tools that we've developed, modelling tools that we've developed since then is a, is like a dynamic weathering model that allows us to calculate carbon dioxide drawdown from one year to the next. Over sort of multiple decade time horizons, and we show that if you do, if you do that, then actually you can draw down quite a bit more CO two because you've got a kind of legacy effect of the uh, rock dust from one year to the next that gives you an amplification of your drawdown.
3: Okay, and um, you've won some funding from the UK government. Can you tell me what what the trial is going to be doing that this money is going towards?
4: So the UKRI award is to set up some field trials in arable croplands. And then also looking at how enhanced weathering might work with grasslands. And then alongside these field trials, we also have very important social engagement research packages. So trying to understand how the local communities feel about this sort of technology and if it was to be rolled out. And also got very strong stakeholder engagement, trying to understand how the farming community might feel about this, if it was deployable, also how the mining industry might view upscaling you could have the best strategy in the world but you know if it was for example direct air capture and you had to have two or three thousand factories taking co2 out of the atmosphere around the coast and then pumping it below the seafloor then you know there are issues about you know siting the factories and, and all the rest of it that might not make it attractive
3: can we can we take some hope now that we're seeing a bit of funding that finally for all these ideas that were only ideas until recently and can you just leave us with a bit of hope for this
4: we've actually been investigating heart's weathering for over 5 years now as part of our Hume center what we're finding is very promising responses in terms of yields and soil health also very promising signs of carbon capture as well so i think for this particular technology the outlook is is very bright
2: that was Rowan talking with David Beerling of the University of Sheffield. And do check out Adam's roundup of all the carbon removal methods in this week's magazine. We'll post a link to that in the show notes. David touched on it there, but we also talk in the piece about how agricultural land should be turned over to tree planting and other carbon sequestration methods.
3: And how this will be enabled by a shift to more plant-based diets. And the other point that I took away from that really is that and David said this, you really need to cut emissions or else any amount of carbon capture is basically going to be hopeless.
2: OK, now let's talk space news of the week with our Chicago-based space reporter, Leah Crane.
3: Hey, Leia, So uh, lots of SpaceX news this week. Um, why don't you tell us about the Polaris programme?
1: So SpaceX has announced this new project that the main aim is to take its Dragon crew capsule higher into orbit than it's ever flown before and higher than anyone has flown since the moon missions. And it's the
3: same billionaire guy, Jared Isaacman, who um, went on the Inspiration 4 mission earlier, uh, later last year, didn't he?
1: Yeah. So he's sponsoring this mission. Him and SpaceX have some deal that they're paying for it together. Um, But he'll be going on the first flight, which is called Polaris Dawn. um, And that's scheduled for sometime in Q4, the end of 2022.
3: And there are, there are three missions that Isaacman's sponsoring, is that right?
1: Yeah, so this Polaris program, of which the first flight is Polaris Dawn, has three missions in it. And the first one is that Dragon capsule going up to the highest orbit it's gone to. And the last one is planned for the first launch of SpaceX's Starship rocket, which is the big shiny one that's planned to take astronauts to the moon and Mars in yeah. the future. Yeah. We don't really know what the second one is yet, but <laughs> but we know the first and the last.
3: I've been watching this being constructed on the launch pad, and it's just staggering, isn't it? I mean it's the it's the biggest rocket ever made, isn't it? It's bigger than the Saturn Vs made for the Apollo Moon program.
1: Yeah, it's huge, it is shiny, yeah.
3: <laughs> it's really a very impressive spacecraft. So, yeah, we'll probably have some delays, but Elon Musk is still saying we'll get this lunar mission, a loop around the moon in Starship by
1: 2023. Is that right, Leia? Yeah, I mean, we'll see. Elon Musk has a history of being optimistic in terms of the timescales on which things are going to happen. So while I do believe that that flight will happen, I don't know about 2023. But either way, before then, this Polaris Dawn mission seems very likely to actually happen towards the end of this year, no earlier than than November. And that mission is going to be cool in particular, because it's going to have the first spacewalk ever performed by a commercial astronaut.
3: Yeah, I mean, that that's amazing. But isn't it? Isn't it like really risky? Because I've seen movies and stuff where Astronauts do a lot of training to do, you know, underwater, like intense training for spacewalks. And there's the, the psychological impact of being out in space.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's going to be a lot of training that has to happen. Um, I know that there was uh, a press call and Jared Isaacman said they're going to go to the mountains and train at high altitudes uh, and all kinds of stuff. The thing that's really wild to me is that the Dragon spacecraft doesn't have an airlock. <laughs> so, when they do that spacewalk, basically, they're gonna have to just open the door and lock out. So everyone on the capsule is also gonna have to be wearing their spacesuits because wow. they're also going to be exposed to the vacuum, which God, they better be strapped nuts. in. <laughs> yeah, one would hope that everything will be strapped down.
3: Yeah. And is there any science on all of this, or is it you know, a tourist trip?
1: I think it's a little bit of both. It's definitely partly a tourist trip jared isaacman is going because he's super rich and he's paid for it Mm -hmm. um however it'll also be the first one to test spacex's starlink communication satellites yeah um, in communications from space those are already being used by some people for internet on earth but they have not been tested in space yet right and also there's some medical research happening to to figure out how space affects astronauts and the big thing is that SpaceX's new spacesuits are going to get tested for the first time on actual people during that spacewalk.
3: Well, So, you know, it's all lining up eventually to get us to Mars or to the moon and then Mars.
1: Yeah, I think that's sort of the path is SpaceX goes to the moon, SpaceX goes to, the, to Mars, SpaceX maybe goes further. And the spacesuit testing and that Starship flight, if and when it eventually happens are pretty big steps that need to happen before any of that more ambitious stuff goes through.
2: Now, if I asked you whether the adult human brain could grow new neurons, what would you say?
3: Hmm. I'd say it's much less flexible than a young brain, but I think, you know, there is evidence, isn't there, that New growth is possible even in an adult brain. We've reported on this, I think. So I'd say, yes, we can grow new cells to some extent.
2: Mm, and we've certainly reported on stuff like that in the past. And mm. I have to say, these stories are always very popular. <laughs> People <laughs> yeah. like to think that we can keep growing our brains. Yeah. But that idea is now being questioned.
3: Ah! No. <laughs> I was, you know, that I, I'm hopeful that we need to be able to, I need to be able to grow some new brain cells.
2: You might just have to take better care of the ones that you have. Yeah. yeah. Um, As we've said, there there have been studies suggesting that adult humans can, to some extent, grow new brain cells, uh, that's new neurons. And we've seen this happening in adult mice and macaques. But now a new study puts doubt on whether this also happens in humans too. So our reporter, Jason Aaron-Murgesu, has this story. uh, We'll link to it in our show notes. But basically, what's happened is the researchers um, behind this work they examined the brains of six people who had donated their brain to science after death. And between them, they had an average age of 53.
3: All right, so quite young.
2: So quite young, but still very much adults, really past that sort of child, teenage years of brain development. And what they did is they focused on the hippocampus. So that's that seahorse-shaped little bit of the brain where memories are formed and stored. And it's really important to us because memory is so important. And and this is what gets sort of um, eroded away and and degenerates in things like Alzheimer's disease and other conditions leading to memory problems. So basically, the researchers look for clues to the age of the neurons in the hippocampi of of these people who donated their brains. Uh, So for example, one of the things they looked for was um, what RNAs, were being expressed in in the cells and that can give you a clue of which genes are active and and that profile in itself can give you an idea of how young or old each of those cells are and so using methods like this they couldn't see any evidence for new neuron growth in these human brains so it doesn't look like there's much or any neurogenesis going on in adult humans
3: yes a deeply bitter blow
2: it is, but here's an interesting perspective on it. One of the researchers Jason spoke to said it's actually more impressive that humans lack neurogenesis. He told him that he's over 88 years old and he has billions of neurons that have lasted a lifetime. And the researcher said that to him, that's more impressive than the idea that mice can make new neurons. Everything that he's learned is still there in his brain and fish just don't have that.
3: <laughs> Great. fit. We're better than fish, says, <laughs> says scientists. <laughs> Well, I guess, so. it's not the final word, is it, by any means? We've only looked at six brains, so there's there's always going to be more to find out.
2: Yeah, exactly. It's only six. They only use certain methods. They only looked in a particular part of the brain. And there's still so much that we don't fully know about the plasticity of the brain and its potential to regenerate, so we can hold out some hope.
3: That's all for this week. Thanks for listening. Uh, If you enjoyed our show, please tell all your friends about it and do subscribe.
2: Yes, and remember that 20% subscription discount you can get at newscientist.com pod20. Thanks to our guests this week, reporters Leah Crane and Alice Klein, and to Professor David Beerling for joining us too. We're back next week. We'll see you then. Bye.
3: Bye. This podcast is produced by OG Podcasts. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk.